Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Hey there. Hey, how you doing? Welcome to Near and Queer to My Heart, the podcast. I'm your host, Amanda G. How we doing? I know you can't answer back. I'm still going to ask. I still care how you're doing. I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. I've been uh, trying to work out a little more, you know, trying to work out instead of just saying, oh, my cat's kneading on my stomach. That counts as sit-ups. I'm trying to actually get up and walk around and do something, get my step count up, get my step game going. It's hard in New Orleans. It is because it gets so hot. New Orleans, it's, it's the kind of place you step outside and you're sweating immediately. You haven't done anything. You're sweating. You're like, well, it looks like I worked out. So that must be it. I must be able to go back in and not move. Uh, so I've been trying. I've been trying to trick myself. I kind of have to trick myself sometimes into working out. After lunch, one of my coworkers and I, sometimes we take a walk. There's a hotel next door to our office, and we go in this. It's a super fancy hotel. And it kind of feels like sneaky, you know, like we're not supposed to be there. We don't have an actual purpose for being there. We're not going to a conference. We definitely can't afford a room or probably a drink at their bar. But we're there just walking around, talking, enjoying the air conditioning getting our step count going and you know it's one of those things where like like I said it it feels bad it feels like a little sneaky but it's not actually bad I can't get in trouble for it but I kind of like having a little edge to that you know I feel like if I did that more often you know I would have more workouts I definitely have more workouts I uh you know always happy to be here always happy to be here wanted to give a special shout out up top to our sponsor Studio headphones. Studio headphones are amazing. I'm still using the ones they gave me uh, to do the podcast. They're great. They're Bluetooth, so I don't have a wire to deal with it. it. It's fantastic. My mom, who's listening, hi, mom. She listens to every episode and then calls me and tells me all the things in the episode that I disclose that I've never disclosed to her. Uh, like earlier in an episode, I referenced a 17-page letter I wrote to Mariah Carey. And she said, I never knew. And I said, yeah, no, I, no one never knew. That was I was never going to tell anybody um, until I got older and decided I I don't care but when I was 12 if anyone would have found that I would have been absolutely mortified now I now I can own my shit 
But she uh, she actually bought a, a pair of studio headphones. She she's retired now, so she goes to the gym every day, and that's her life. She has a gym and a pool by where she is, and she travels and she plays Scrabble, and that's that's what she does. But she went um, she goes up to the gym and she got these Bluetooth headphones. So it's great because I used to go to the gym with my wired headphones, and when I get really into the treadmill, like when I'd actually start running sometimes the headphones would trip up and they'd fall and I'd fall and it'd be this whole thing. Bluetooth, you just pop them in your ear and you go. And it's great and you don't have to worry about that. So check out studio.com. We have we have a code we can give you all and it'll get you 15% off. They do free international shipping. Our code is uh, near and queer. So go to studio.com when you check out near and queer and that'll we'll take care of you and check them out. And uh, also, we I, sorry, we got some business to talk about. Business. We have a live podcast recording coming up near and queer in my heart will be live at crescent city books in downtown new orleans may 30th at 7 30 so put that on your calendars we're going to be interviewing jeff d who's amazing jeff d's been in movies he has uh, done comedy all over the country he's hilarious so he's going to do a longer set than we normally put on the podcast and then we're going to sit down and interview him so also if you have questions for jeff d email them to us or send us to the send us them on facebook uh, near and queer to my heart at gmail.com near and queer to my heart on facebook let us know what you want to know about jeff d and we'll uh pull it out of him now nah, he's he's great he'll probably just tell us anyway um yeah, but we're excited for that, and I'm excited for this episode. This episode's amazing. Um, what I love with this, and this is someone who I've known four years uh, since I first started stand-up, so when I was a newbie you know, in the stand-up scene in New Orleans, uh, she was always this, the kindest soul to me and really made me feel welcome, um, and now I'm so happy to have her on this podcast, uh, Jade Patton. Jade Patton does stand-up, she does burlesque, uh, she performs, uh, she does storytelling, she does all sorts of cool art stuff, um, and she's an amazing person, and she's, she's lived a life, and she opens up to us on this podcast, and we're so happy to have her. So we're just going to get right to the episode. Please welcome Jade Patton, y'all. What do you go by these days? I'm Jade Bronte on Facebook because of my job, but I still go by Jade Patton on stage. So I met Jade, and I think you were 19 when I met you. Mm-hmm. I know you were underage and like sneaking. She wasn't sneaking into bars to get fucked up. She was sneaking into bars to do comedy, <laughs> which I really like loved. I was like, man, she is hustling. She is busting her butt. She she'd get kicked out of here, and she doesn't care for like the love of comedy. There was a bar here that, and you know, I don't think they've ever ID'd me again since in like the five years that I've been here but they would make me put X's on my hands to go in and then the next day I would forget to wash them off and people would be like straight edge man <laughs> and I'm like no no not really <laughs> is that what the X means? it means like you say X to fun and I drugs guess. and sex and wow. I don't know what do straight edge people do but yes to prayer or like you yes turn it to and poetry that, you turn it and the X is a cross like is that I don't know because all the straight edge people I've ever met have been like Real punk, but that like Christian brand of punk. Yeah, it's like you think they're gothic, and then you look really close, and you're like, it's the Jesus fish. <laughs> I never say your hometown right, but is it Amy? You it's, grew up in Amit? Amy, Louisiana. But the funny thing is, is if you're in Mississippi, there's also a city. It's spelled exactly the same way, and it's pronounced Amit. But if you're in Louisiana, it's Amit. <laughs> okay, and which one came first? 
Huh? Chicken or an egg situation? <laughs> Actually, no idea. All I know about Amit, Louisiana, is that Jalen Spears's baby daddy is from there. Oh, so that's their claim to fame? Weird fun fact. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's what they got. Um, and then we've got Brittany, you know, Kentwood area. Kentwood, yeah. Parish. It's all kind of the same. Oh, yeah. We have Kentwood water. I don't know if people that aren't don't live here, but our, like, Arrowhead a water, like, the water you get at the office when you sit around the water coolers from Kentwood. And mm-hmm. everybody's got to be like, oh, Kentwood, Brittany Spears. Oh, yeah. I've actually been to the literal Kentwood Springs, like, several times in my life. It's like... Out in the middle of the woods, there's like this non conservatory there that's really beautiful. I actually don't even know if conservatory is still in use, but it's weird, just weird Louisiana tree. Yeah. But is there like a big thing of Britney Spears there? Or? Yeah, well, so my, I like, I've had to forgive myself recently for my horrible, like, just judgments about Britney Spears. There's this weird thing that when I was a kid, I don't even actually know if this is true. But my mom told me that the Spears family bought the woods across the street from our property. And so someone bought those woods, cut all the trees down, sold the land, and it became like a turkey hunting farm. But I was just furious that they cut down the trees in this forest <laughs> that I loved. And as a kid, my mom told me it was a Spears family. And so forever, I just had this weird grudge against Britney Spears. <laughs> where I was like, she cut down the forest to build a turkey farm. <laughs> Is that tr- Do you know if it's true at all? I have no idea. I feel like it's probably just a thing my mom said. She probably didn't want you listening to her music. She's like, Maybe. oh, that Britney's up to no good. I'm just going to tell Jade some bullshit about a forest. She had some weird things that she was just like very picky about like I wore I really 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 wanted to go to like private school and like boarding school because that was my idea of what success looked like I was like oh successful people that's what people in New York did and that was a dream is I was gonna go live in New York so I just begged my parents to send me to boarding school and they're like we're poor what are you talking about <laughs> preschool down the street it'll be just fine so in high school I went through this phase where I would only wear skirts knee-high socks, sweaters over my uniform shirt, and huge hair bows. And my mom just was so disgusted. (laughs) She'd be like, I cannot believe that I raised a bow head for a daughter. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that was a thing. My mom would have loved, she would have loved for me to put any interest into doing my hair, putting a bow in, or having an outfit that matched. Like, she would have really appreciated that. I was, I was real saucy nerd. So what was it like growing up there? Because I know one of your jokes, you talk about how there's still the Confederate flag. I almost said conservative flag. It's the same shit. There's the Confederate flag still on the, the police cars. Yeah. So the Confederate flag thing got me into a lot of trouble. My grandfather pointed this out to me first as a joke. Well, I mean, a true joke. He fought, My grandfather actually went to the police station and made a complaint because the decals on the police cars looked very similar to a Confederate flag if it had been, like, pulled out, stretched out. So my grandfather goes to the police station. He's, like, this old-age social worker who did all his civil rights work, led tons of anti-racism campaigns. Like, that's, they, my grandparents were, like, my true exposure to nonprofit and social work. So he goes to the police station, he makes this complaint, and they legitimately tell him, it's not a Confederate flag. 
it's an American flag, and that's just the way it's folded. <laughs> and he bought that? Oh, he was like, that's ridiculous. He's like, no, this is bullshit. So, it had been a joke in the family for years, and eventually I was like, that's really funny. I should talk about that on stage, because I've never, I don't think anything, like, encompasses a meat so much of what it is. So I did a joke about it forever. And then there was a lot of, you know, there's just been a lot of things that have happened in our country that need to be talked about when it comes to race relations. And so I pointed it out a little more abruptly on Facebook one day. And I say more abruptly, but all I did was post a picture of the police cars. Yeah, I was like, it's not abrupt. It's your Facebook. You can put, People said, forget that. You can put whatever you want on your Facebook. And I said, hey, just a friendly reminder, you know, the stuff's going on in our country, and this is still what our police cars look like. It's Confederate flag. People were furious. They were so angry. I got, I had, like, small-town politicians that were, like, Oh, for real? Talking about me on their on their on their campaign pages. You're like, I've always wanted to go viral, but this I, wasn't what I thought <laughs> was going to do it. I lost friends. I have friends that still don't talk to me. Friends that I like grew up with and was really close. I like didn't get invited to their weddings. They don't want anything to do with me. I blocked me on all social media because people thought that I was really just being divisive, and I felt like you know this is a thing that's. Funny if you can step back from the horror of it, the attitudes about it are kind of funny. There's, like, humor to be found there. But also, it, it's sort of a picture of how we have all these, like, symbols kind of in the background constantly, and we don't even really think about them. And I'm like, what a better conversation piece than this thing that is as simple as just change the decals. But the funny thing about it was that I called the police station, and I was like, hey, look, you know, I've kind of done some research. These decals were paid for with public funding, with with tax money. So all I want to know is where were they bought from? Because I wanted to know what the name of the decal was. Uh-huh. Because I had so a you've feeling. You actually looked into that this. I really like did. You actually put effort into this. I had a feeling that it wasn't going to say American flag decal. <laughs> because my dad and I sat and went through all these decal pictures to try to find one that looked like it. And we couldn't. So it had to have been a conscious. Someone had to have done it on purpose. And it was just absurd how angry people were about it. And and then on the other side of it, I felt like I had to learn to, I guess, kind of divide myself from, like, the more common opinion a lot earlier in my life. You know, our current governor, I grew up with his daughters, went to school with them, and was really good friends with them at some point various points in my life and we have a democratic governor yeah which is crazy for once (laughs) so like my exposure to our current governor is that when i was in eighth grade i wrote an essay on a student of the year essay and my platforms were aids in africa which uh, that's a whole nother thing (laughs) (laughs) and global warming and he got a hold of it through like one of his kids saw it and like sent his like congratulations through his daughter and like wanted to share documentaries with me on global warming and like really took an interest and like growing up in a town where other people were like this girl believes in science and abortion (laughs) (laughs) like she doesn't see this as an american flag and those were things i got bullied about as a kid like i had a very unfortunate period of puberty where i was my parents let me dress myself and I didn't brush my hair, and I was just this really, like, awkwardly shaped Medicaid glasses, just just goofy-looking 
But the things that I got bullied for were like, she's reading Harry Potter, she believes in the devil. And the imagination and creativity people will put into expressing their bigotry is amazing. Yeah, but when you try to have a conversation, like you put that Facebook post up, anyone could have had a conversation with you. And I'm sure you would have been more than happy to have it. But instead of that, they block you, they complain, they, you know, and so that's why we don't get those conversations. Oh, yeah. Just even people, they're just like, let's sweep this under the rug versus discuss it. Or they say like, oh, there's no point in discussing because you feel this way and I feel this way and there's no way that's ever going to change. Right. I've always said I found a home here in New Orleans. This is where I ended up. And I love New Orleans and I consider it home, but... It's, it's not the city that made me. Most of my formative experiences come from being in a small town like that. And I think that it's important to have ownership of where you're from. And I think that you kind of, a lot of people don't have that for various reasons. There's, not, there's lots of reasons not to feel connected to your home. And I definitely didn't feel connected to mine. But it's still, it still shaped who I am in a lot of ways. Seeing how people who feel really lost, I think, kind of gravitate to New Orleans seeing the way that they struggle with this idea of gentrification because they don't want to feel like they're doing something wrong in a place that they love. I've really had a lot of conversations with myself about just like owning where I'm from. And so Amy has this really dark, weird side. You know what's great? My dad is in this Facebook group called You Might Be From Amy If. And we talk about it all the time because he's like, you know, it's always these old white people who are like, oh, you remember Miss Billie Jean? We'd go down to her house after church, and she'd make us egg salad sandwiches, and then we'd, you know, toilet paper the preacher's son's house on Thursday nights after youth group, you know, whatever it is. And these, like, really, like, romantically told tales. But then that's it. It's all old white people. And my dad's like, it's so hard not to go into these spaces and be like, remember how there's still colored only signs that haven't been painted over in the backs of certain buildings oh wow that's still there oh yeah i mean there's a lot of things like that we had a segregated homecoming court until my senior year of high school are you serious until my senior year when they changed it it was people were furious it was a huge deal that is no there was no legal any there was the ballot this is how it is and we're the ballot was split directly down the middle and it said white girls at the top and black girls at the other side. Holy shit. And you would write down those names. And you're not that old, so that's not like... Yeah, no, it was 2011 was yeah. when they changed it. That is incredible. I'm still like, that so really still was happening. That's a neat. It still really exists in very, you know, tongue-in-cheek, but black and white terms. It's yeah. like, things are this way or they're that way, and that's just the way they are. And we just deal with them in that manner. But it's our town. I think it's interesting, too, about talking about your hometown. Because I grew up in the suburbs of L.A. And I never felt like I was at home. It is my home. You know, and I grew up there. And they did define who I am. But, like, New Orleans, to me, feels like home because I feel comfortable here. In a way that I couldn't feel comfortable there because the suburbs are... It is very cookie cutter. It's very, like, Santa Clarita's where I'm from. Santa Clarita Diet, that show. If you watch that, like, the first season of Weeds, Agrestic is essentially... Valencia, where I, you know, Candy Country, where I grew up, Santa Clarita Valley, it, it is that. And it's the, the khakis and the, you know, I, I just didn't feel like me there, you know, because I couldn't be me because what I was, especially being gay, was not tolerated there. Yeah, I, 
I think that's probably a lot of the reasons why I didn't even start to look at my queer identity or like to consider it a thing to be thought about until I really like got away from Amy because it just wasn't a thing. I mean, we had queer figureheads of our town that I don't want to say too much because I don't want to out anyone, but we had people in our town who were as much of a part of this ta- the narrative as like, oh, that's the baker and that's the fire chief, you know, things like that, who were obviously gay men who just, you could just, I mean, and that's a stereotype. They just were. And everyone knew, also everyone knew that they were gay men and it was like an open secret. Were they, okay, were they out or they just like... They would get married. Okay. They would have kids. Okay. And people that... were very accepting of it in that way. Or, you know, and, and, and that's the thing, I, I knew very few gay women growing up. They they were much more accepting of gay men. So I knew a couple of gay couples that were together that maybe adopted a child and moved to the country, but they had a role in that town that people were very comfortable with. It was like, oh, well, they're gay men, but they groom our dogs, which is so stereotypical and feels so strange to say out loud. Yeah. But it's almost like they kind of had to exist in the space. Either you couldn't be out at all or you had to be so flamboyant and exist so much in this idea of what people thought that gay people were like that there was no in between you got to become a stereotype of yeah yourself essentially and so i knew oh i'm not people's idea of what a lesbian is and really i mean i knew i like boys so that was i don't think we've even addressed it yet i feel like i'm more comfortably identified with queer but if it was like but if I'm trying to explain to someone who doesn't really have a grasp of that language, I usually just say, oh, I'm bisexual. But, like, I knew I liked boys. So the way that I felt about women, I was like, oh, I don't even have to go there. There's no reason or need. That needs to stay way up in whatever box it is. Because this other one's easier and more accepting. Yeah. And it's right there. My dad and I talk about it now because my high school sweetheart was gay. And so we... I had frequent conversations about being attracted to the same sex and would always brush it off as like, oh boy, puberty's weird. <laughs> Look at us being open. You know what I mean? We will talk about anything. We're that connected. We can literally talk about anything, but we'll only talk about this. So like it would come up and it would be like, oh, you know, sometimes I see boys and I feel this way. Or I'd be like, sometimes I see girls and I feel that way. And, like, I don't know where we learned that sexuality was fluid, but somehow we had, which, I mean, isn't even the thing that you would hear growing up, uh, you know, I feel like we've come so far just since I've graduated high school. But, like, we knew that, so we were just like, oh, everyone has, you know, like, moments and levels of attraction, and that's just puberty, and hormones are making us a little weird, and we're straight, and that's fine. Because we have each other. (laughs) No, I mean, that's cool that you could, and it's kind of interesting that you had those conversations, but you had them, like, in your own, in your own way, in your own context, you know? Yeah. You know, like, it's okay if we have this in this bubble because we're in this bubble because we're dating. I guess the big thing for me was that I didn't know any queer people who seemed queer like me. So, like, I have lesbian aunts who live in the mountains and, um, are preachers they take blind children into the mountains and teach them how to camp 
Sounds like a made-up thing. Come from a very eclectic family. Look, if um, anyone can teach anyone, anyone how to camp, no matter what their abilities are, it's going to be two lesbians who are also preachers. Like, that's just what's going to happen. So I knew, like, that's not me, you know? And I, like, I'm not doing that. That's, that sounds I, like a lot of work. Actually, the only, the only gay person my age that I knew growing up was also he wasn't from a meet he and he just he carried himself very assuredly and he was just he was gay and that was it and he was like I've known forever and so have my parents they had moved to a meet from New York God knows how they got there and yeah, actually like, that's quite a journey <laughs> yeah and I'm actually going to see him drag you away tonight oh from the drag okay. program and it's like even seeing that I was like well if I was this way then I would be so sure of it, like this person is. Yeah, but everyone's journey is different. But I understand what you're saying. Like, I would think about women, and I'd be like, this isn't normal. And I'd be like, stop it. And then I would just stop thinking about it. Yeah. The the thoughts didn't go away. They'd come back. But, like, for that moment, I would just tell myself, like, you don't do this. And then I didn't do it. Yeah. So first chance you got, did you get out of your hometown? Were you just, like, 18 and gone? Or were you up in the air about that? Or what what was your next move? It, so I graduate, and my my parents, I had to get top scholarships, so I knew I wasn't going to go out of state. That's a Louisiana, right? That's yeah, it's a Louisiana, the state scholarship. So I knew that I was going to, if, if I was a resident, I was going to have to, if I was going to go to college, I was going to have to do it that way, which I mean, fuck that up. But <laughs> So I ended up going to Baton Rouge to go to Louisiana State University. But my first year was was really weird because my stepmom was was very abusive and was so much a figurehead in my in my household, which I don't talk about that a lot. So this is interesting. But she really kind of I was financially dependent on my parents still, oh, yeah. and I had not really emotionally extracted extracted myself from there. So I the expectation was that I came home every weekend. Every weekend? Every weekend. I was financially dependent, and I did not come home every weekend. (laughs) The few weekends that I didn't, it was a big deal. It was this big, just horrible thing. You'd be safer at home on the weekend. You can go to school, but but as far as any social life, if you come home on the weekends, you'll be safer. I don't know what. I think a lot of it it was a lot of just control. I'm sure that there were... if, If, you know, I were to sit her down and talk about it, which, like, her abuse isn't a topic of discussion that she's willing to have right now in her life but I'm sure that she would be able to rationalize it in some way but the result of it ended up being that during the week I starved for social attention and so I was going out on weeknights when I should have been staying home because I just felt so I felt really trapped and I I didn't know who I was and I hadn't really had an opportunity to come into my personality because when you have an abusive parent you just, you know, your life is just walking from one eggshell to the next and trying to keep everything calm and trying to keep everything peaceful. So I got into LSU and I kind of was bouncing around three or four different social groups. So I lived in the sorority dorm. Wasn't going to rush sorority. Couldn't afford it, but I was like, well, I'll go live in the dorm where all the sorority girls live before they rush. I live in a four-person dorm room and I'll make three instant friends. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because I'd never experienced girls before, I guess. I don't know why 
Well, because you see all the movies and you you know you see like that's just and they tell you especially when you go on the college tours that's what they tell you like you just come and everyone's just your friend and everyone's cool and you're like oh yeah oh, it's and easy. These, these three girls they were all three of them from the same town in Texas they oh, were shit. all sorority girls and one of the three wanted anything to do with me. Did they all know each other? They all knew each other. Oh, okay. The funny thing is, is they tried to get me to switch places with another girl out of, and I, out of spite, refused. <laughs> also, it was cheaper. It was cheaper to live with four girls versus one roommate. Mm-hmm. Dorm room significantly cheaper. And so I was like, no. Well, that girl ended up being one of my first, like, openly lesbian friends that would have been my roommate. So I, you know, maybe I robbed myself of that a little bit, but hey, it was twenty twenty. You know? Yeah, and spite is experience. spite keeps a lot of us alive. You know? <laughs> spite is what keeps a lot of people going. So I was between I was living in the sorority dorm. Um, I was still really attached to like this Christian identity that I found growing up where I grew up. So I was really involved in the Baptist collegiate ministry, and then. I had made a friend at orientation who introduced me to Spectrum, and Spectrum was the LGBT queer alliance at LSU's campus. That's a good name. I made friends with all of these older students, most of them were graduate students, who had spent a lot of time figuring out their identity, who had really concise language for it, who were able to talk about it, and who you know, taught me about things like non-binary and genderqueer, all these things that I've never even been exposed to. Um, I kind of got like a master course in it really quickly and then went through this like long phase of, well, I'm an ally and this is the space, this is the space I exist in is I can be around these people that I find very intriguing, that something really speaks to me about this environment and can safely be here as an ally. And so I got a lot of exposure to I guess to the fact that there was no certain way that queer people existed. Yeah. Then my mom died right before my second semester started. And I just, I mean, I went, I went buck wild. Uh, my, my stepmom had a really bad reaction to my mom dying. Really? Her and I have only talked about it once ever. But I think that she just didn't know how to handle it. And the easiest way to handle it was to be angry at me. It caused, I mean, ultimately her reaction to my my mom's death changed a lot of things in my life and our relationship and her relationship with my dad, all these things. And I think that was kind of like the stopping point of a lot of the emotional abuse. Like that was where I said, okay, no, this is enough. And where my dad said, this is enough. And, you know, I think there started to be a lot more accountability there. My stepmom's a really complicated topic for me because, you know, I, I called her mom. I considered her my mom. How old were you when she became your stepmom? Uh, she moved in when I was about 10. Okay. So, so you were pretty young. T- yeah. T- about 10 years of my life, we were, you know, really, she was a consistent figure. We don't talk as much now. She's also, she's my brother's mom. And my brother, I've got, you know, we have four siblings, but my, my youngest brother, my littlest brother, he's... Everything that makes me want to be good in the world, he's just, mm-hmm. he's amazing. And so, when it comes down to it, like, I think the best way that I've learned to navigate those feelings is to just talk about the abuse openly, to not let it be a defining factor in who she is as a person, but it's to also know that, like, that's a part of my narrative, and it's something that I need to own, it's something I need to talk about. For 
for a long time I didn't talk about it. Like, I've just started to talk about it this year of, like, you know, I said, oh, well, uh, things at home were kind of this, or my parents were kind of controlling. But, like, really, like, there was a lot of physical and emotional abuse that went on for years. And it's weird to confront it. It's, like, weird to work through it. But I think it's important to just own it. It's tough too. Like that's a it's a tough path to take. But I always admire you because you talk about it. Even in comedy, you'll talk about it. You'll talk about it like in person. You know, we've had many conversations to Facebook. Like you're very open about it and about you know other things that have that have happened or are going on. And that's the best way to work through it because I always see you like coming out the other side of it. And I think that's always like so admirable and, and really cool because you can't just like be stuck. Well, you know, and there's probably moments where you were kind of stuck in different things but oh like, yeah you, you you're teaching yourself how to move past it and, and how to work through it not necessarily be like oh i'm past it it's done but like you know hey i'm processing it i'm, I'm working through my emotions and there's like still moments where i'm like i'm really in that still but um i guess i've just learned to like work through things in bite sizes like i said it today i told a friend i'm like you know I can talk very openly about those things that were really difficult in my life in pieces. But when I have to acknowledge that whole chunk of time as a chunk of time, like as this one solitary thing, it's it's really hard. So I think it's just like I've learned to confront the whole by like really individually, like going like, all right, I'm going to chomp down on this for a minute. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's, that's a good way to, to do that, especially, you know, like I said, there's a lot of different pieces of that. So you're at LSU in Baton Rouge. Do you stay there? Or? Yeah, I live in the dorm. Um, so you stay in the sorority dorm? I, so I get a lot of little things happen. I'm not going to log well with these roommates to begin with. I, I could have predicted that part of your, um, <laughs> your story. I'll keep that just short and simple. We're not going to log. Mom does. I'm like... I gotta get out of here. So I moved to I moved to the dorm a couple dorms over, um, known as it was called Hergit Hall, but it was finally referred to as Hergatory. <laughs> <laughs> and moved there because I'm like, oh I gotta get away from all this stuff. I gotta get away from my mom's dad. The horrible thing is maybe a month or two after I move in there, there was a suicide committed in the building oh, on the shit. floor above mine. Which is not funny at all. No. But if I were going to direct a short indie film about my life, it was just one of those really like, are you serious? Oh, Moments God. just yeah. like, come on. Like, I'm trying to get away from death. Here it is, right? Literally. Right literally above. hanging above me. Oh, <laughs> and you would just move there. I didn't read this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I'm there and I just. Basically, it was living in my dorm because I didn't have anywhere else to go. I like living at home had not become was not a safe option anymore. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm just gonna live here until the semester's over. I'll figure it out as I go. And I'm drinking like crazy, like I'm just partying. You know, LSU is one of those places with such an abrupt party scene that you can really just drink yourself to death, and no one really. It's not doesn't look like a warning sign it's yeah, just like no red flags everyone's doing it you drink every every night of the week and there's a reason to drink every night of the week i mean i think that kind of happens here in new orleans sometimes too but especially oh, yeah. as a college student so there was a lot of things that happened i got assaulted on campus probably about three weeks after my mom's funeral which kind of like 
I think really changed the nature of my relationship with men, or at least started to. And then I'm like, okay, this isn't really working out. I end up moving in with my grandparents back in Amy for a little bit, kind of start trying to go back to community college, start to try to gain my independence again, try to figure out who I am. I still don't really know, um, but I'm getting a little bit closer. And then I start seeing someone who does stand up. I've always wanted to do stand up, but like my <laughs> my stepmom's exact words to me as a kid were, "I don't know why you think you could do stand up. You don't even have anything weird going on with your face, like Tina Fey's scar. That's the requirement <laughs> for stand up. It's like a thing that only stand up comedians can appreciate is hilarious because like <laughs> I don't know anything else where that's like the the the, that's the curriculum. <laughs> no one's like you want to play football. Well, you have a scar on your face, like Drew Brees. Like that's I don't. That's a weird thing. But then you know I think about it and I'm like, what? What is the most terrifying thing to someone who is in a position of power and is a, has a, an abusive hold and it's like a voice? Yeah. So I, can, I imagine that me doing stand-up now is a very scary thing because I do try to talk about it very and, yeah, and also cautiously. If she has that, because a few people in my life have said, oh, you're doing stand-up, I bet you're going to tell jokes about me. And I'm like, this is not about you. Yeah. This is not, this is not your time. And now maybe I am. I wasn't thinking about it before, but I, to me, that's like a challenge. Right. I think a lot of people in our lives are afraid of that, that we're using stand up as a way to just like rag on them while we have a microphone and they don't. But I do think that there is some truth and it does give you a voice. I'd just like to take some time out to thank our sponsor, Studio Headphones. Studio.com, S-U-D-I-O. Uh. Studio wants to revolutionize the way people see headphones as not just a tech device, but also an accessory. Currently, the headphones market can offer you one of two things, style or tech. Fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality, and high-tech variations are bulky and not design-oriented. They wanted to bridge the gap. While emphasizing their modern Scandinavian design, they also provide a product that matches the quality of even the highest-rated headphones on the market for a fraction of the cost. They provide free worldwide shipping, and with us, with Near and Queer to My Heart, you can get a discount 15% off any purchase near and queer is your discount code all one word check them out sudio.com all right so you're at LSU all this shit's happening you left LSU you said you went home for a little bit yeah so I left LSU I went home for a little bit I tried to go back to community college and stand-up was still this thing that I really wanted to do, but I'd never really been exposed to it. I didn't know what that scene looked like or if it even existed. And then I started dating this guy who did stand-up. Was that intentional? Were you like, you do stand-up, we're dating now? Or was it like you met him (laughs) and you're like, oh, I like you already, and you're also doing this thing that I've been thinking about, and that's really cool? Oh, so we actually hit it off. On, I think we talked about serial killers. I think that was, like, it was very, so this guy was very, he was, like, very religious. He, I say was, he's still very religious. He was, um, like, celibate, super Christian. None of that matters. But he did comedy, and I thought that was cool that he did comedy, but also I thought that I could do it, too. So you bonded over comedy and serial killers? Yeah. I feel like my parents feel about comedy the same way that they feel about 
my interest in murder. Like, that was the thing I got in trouble for a lot in high school was, like, checking out books on serial killers. And well, you're probably on some list somewhere. Probably. But, like, you ever my, tried to travel out of the country? My parents, my grandparents are activists, so, like, I feel like our family's just flagged. My uncle was involved in some really cool, weird, like, underground queer culture. It's so strange because that's, like, my dad's side of my family, which I think exposed me to a lot of, like, more... My grandparents took me to, like, play theater, and I remember, like, that's the first time, like, I saw a man in drag. was in theater, and, like, Peter Pan was the first play I ever saw, so... And they're, like, these, like activists who have queer siblings who are um, more spiritual than they are religious and then the other side of my family is like very baptist very um very baptist (laughs) (laughs) they just they're more traditional they they have these values that have gotten them through things and they hold to them very fast. Their values are confusing though. Like when I first moved to Louisiana we were planning a fundraiser for a nonprofit, and uh, somebody, it was probably me because I'm like a gambler for sure suggested a poker night. Mm -hmm. And someone was like, we can't do that in Louisiana. And then she's like, you know why? And then she leaned in and whispered, the Baptists. (laughs) And I was like, I don't know what that means. Like just say you don't want to do a poker night. I don't understand. <laughs> and I was still like, that's a good fundraiser. Hands down. People will come out for it. They'll pay money. This is still a solid idea. And whatever they settled on, they made no money. So I think I was right. I also think that the uh, the Baptists are just a scapegoat for reasons you can't have fun in the South. If there's, like, because we're, I say we, I still, I still have a lot of that foundationally. But, like, the Baptists are not upti- as uptight as they are made out to be. It really just depends on, like, what kind of Baptist church are you in. Because there's Southern Baptists, and you have, like, Primitive Baptists. From a young age, when... Because you went to church, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you said you were really to church. Did they talk about gay people at all? Is that a topic? That was, I think, the first really big disconnect that I had with the church, was that they did talk about it. You know, I encountered people who were really hateful and, like, said really gross things, but also... A lot of the attitude that I encountered was the whole hate the sinner, not the sin thing. Which I think was, like, initially easier to digest. But I just, it didn't make sense to me that that was enough for people to go to hell. Even before I, like, connected with my own identity. I think that that was, like, the first thing that I really was like, this makes me unsure of how I feel about this God. So, like, it was talked about and it was probably what made me more, the most uncomfortable before women's roles before anything because that was the one thing that I was like that just doesn't make sense to me yeah what about what about in school like like even in California I had a biology teacher who definitely did not believe in evolution and he was like I'm required to teach this by law but we all know that God created the universe so I had it just like it's the same thing I had like some teachers who were really conservative you know my my high school sweetheart his dad was my teacher for a couple years and he would, like, call me out, and he would be like, what do you think about that, little Miss Democrat? And I'm like, this is geography. Like, my brother, though, they just skipped evolution completely. They Really? In his school, he went to a private school, and they were like, we're just not going to teach this. We just don't go there. We just don't go there. We don't do it. Um, and then, you know, I think in church, 
we were taught like the Big Bang Theory. God said bang. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and there it was. <laughs> when you did comedy, so you were dating someone, was he cool? Well, no, he was not cool. He <laughs> I always wonder the dynamic of like comedy couples because there's some, like in New Orleans, there's some that just do it so fucking well. And then there's some where you can see the tension in that. Well, know? so the thing is, is that he'd been doing comedy at that point for maybe three or four years. So we, we start seeing each other, and from the beginning of the relationship, we know that he's going to be moving out of the country. I intentionally waited for him to leave the country before I started doing comedy. Oh, so, so like, you kind of suspected. Yeah, I knew I was going to do it, and I also was like, I don't want to... This is something that I've always wanted before I even met this person. It's just interesting to me that he does it. And I don't want to be some dude's girlfriend. That's not me. That's not what I want. And then after he left, I wrote a set. I worked on it by myself, which you can't really do. <laughs> yeah, you just look in the mirror and you're like, that was great. <laughs> um, and then and then I went in and I was just like, I'm going to do it. And I did it. We had tension because he was, you know, he's a, he was across seas. He was in Korea. Over the year, I guess I progressed very quickly. I mean... Within six months of doing it in Hammond, which is where I live, was living, which is about 15 minutes away from Amy, six months in, I was like, okay, I'm going to move. I need to leave school. This is the thing that I've always wanted to do. It feels right. It was like the first time that I'd felt any sense of control after everything that had kind of been going on in my life at that point. And I was like, I mean, it hadn't even been a year really since my mom, like maybe just barely a year since I've lost my mom. And I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So I decided that I was going to move to New Orleans. And why New Orleans? It was close to the city. <laughs> it was without a map, and you're like, yeah, That's it. you know, I people I've been getting booked to do shows, sorta. Like I, you know, I had a couple people who were who were inviting me to do shows. Um, I, you know, you know that I got kind of mixed up with. A, like really shitty opportunist of a person who like wanted to groom me so the first couple months that I moved into New Orleans I didn't really know about the scene um and then some of the other guys were like hey you know there are other shows right <laughs> and I was like no I don't actually I don't know that there are other shows if you try to find open mics online they send you to shows that have not existed for years oh, yeah. and then the bar makes like, fun of you <laughs> I'm like stop being mean to me just tell me where these other shows are I just want to do free comedy he's like... not telling me and so I like I know you're talking I didn't realize y'all met that soon so oh yeah we met maybe my, my we met my first Mike. And the scene is so is so big that you can... Because there's a lot of people, like, I'll go to one show, like, at Carrollton Station, I'll go and I'll only see people that are at that show every week. And then I'll start telling them about other shows, like, down St. Claude or somewhere else, and they're like, oh, man, there's shows every night of the week? And I'm like, yeah, there are. When you moved to New Orleans, were you in school, working, or just strictly comedy? Uh, just comedy. I got a nanny job. I worked, like, three days a week as a nanny and scraped rent up. And scraped groceries up and just like did it. I know you also started doing burlesque more more recently. Mm-hmm. And what what made you decide to to go down that path and try burlesque? So burlesque, I got introduced to burlesque because of comedy. Comics I knew would host shows. Actually, the very first burlesque show I ever saw, I just decided to go to it because I was coming into town for a comedy show in New Orleans. So I hadn't even moved here yet. 
and it was um, a Clue burlesque show at the Always Lounge. And I remember being like, I've never seen anything like this. Paul Oswald, who I'd met before doing stand-up in Hammond, was on that show and did comedy on it. So I thought that was really cool. I was like, oh, here's this weird, I guess, vessel for comedy that I've never seen before. But the burlesque was incredible. Like, I... That that was culture shock for me. I'd never been experienced anything like that. So I started to go to a lot of shows and just watch it and was like really enamored with it and made friends with a lot of the dancers. And I had gotten particularly close to Zena Zeitgeist, who runs a Society of Sin, which is one of the you know more prominent burlesque groups here in New Orleans. And they had a dropout on a show. And I was like, you know what? I feel like I could do that part. Nice. And I feel like I've got the time to put the work in. Um, and at that time, like, I was not comfortable showing my body, which is funny because you, if you know me now, you know that I'm <laughs> like, I'll take my shirt off anywhere. Like, I love to be nude. It's my favorite thing. But at the time, like, I remember, like, being terrified in dressing rooms. All of my first photo shoot photos, I look like just a scared baby deer. My eyes are just, like, huge, and I don't know what to do with my mouth. And my, like, makeup looks like a little girl who got into her mom's makeup. It's just, like, a lot of blush eye makeup that doesn't make sense. So, my first show, I didn't even do a full strip. I just kind of did, like, a little bit of, like, here's a little titty. I loved it, and it felt really good, and I was like, I think I could do this and I went to classes and and I had a really really great burlesque family that like really took me in and taught me how to sew and how to make pasties and how to do all these things and um ended up doing like my first full strip which was as Artemis in an always sunny in burlesque show <laughs> that's one thing I love about the New Orleans burlesque scene and I'm sure in other places but they the burlesque is so different. Like, every show is, is so different. There's so many uh, different types of performances that are really cool. I also, like, I have a, a friend that does burlesque, and she, it's funny because, like, she's like, I have no problem taking, like, she pulls rosaries out of her cooch, but she's like, I can't talk in public. Like, that would scare me. And for me, I'm like, I'll say any shit I want, but the burlesque or the, any, any sort of that type of performance using my body, like, I'm scared to do Even in my comedy, I'm scared to do it. So I think it's so interesting that you have both of, like, you, you've achieved both of those. Well, I would say it's a different kind of naked. I think it made me a better comic. I think it made me a better uh, teacher because I work in a school. Like, I think it's just, it made me better overall because it made me a lot more comfortable with my body and it made me, like, go to this place where I was like, okay, this is who I am and and people enjoy this and people think it's sexy and people think it's fun. I This girl, and I've, I've said it before and I'll talk about it forever because it meant so much to me, came up to me after a burlesque show and she was crying and she was like, I didn't know that I was allowed to be sexy. And that like just resonated with me so much because I was like, no, I've been there. Like I know what that feels like to think, oh, someone my size, it can't moving this way isn't allowed to be seen as this way especially as like a fat funny woman yeah <laughs> which is like uh, there's kind of I, I did a I did a photo shoot a while back with a friend of mine where I got naked it was a really serious sexy shoot but we just projected my jokes onto my body 
So like I'm naked and it's these really beautiful pictures, but if you look really close, it just says like cornbread across my <laughs> boob. But the whole thing was I was like, you know, I kind of want to address how in comedy I'm almost afraid to be sexual because I don't want people to not take me serious. But in burlesque, I feel like I have to own my sexuality so much more because I don't want people to say that the only reason I'm sexy is because I'm funny. I don't want to be the funny fat girl. I know it's so sexy that you're funny. Like, I just want to exist as a whole woman yeah. and have all of these things be tied in together but also separate. And it's just a weird, it's been a weird journey. I think that burlesque made me a lot more comfortable with my queerness at least in our troop there was just like this really weird pot of diversity happening and it was so easy to be comfortable with myself in one way and I think that just kind of like lends itself to another way you're out now like now you're out to everybody yeah uh, when you first got to New Orleans were you out were you still no I so the first woman that I ever remember like having feelings for was a really good friend of mine. And a few months into me living in New Orleans, we ended up hooking up and we both freaked out. And when I say we freaked out, I mean we just didn't talk to each other for a few years. Like the next morning, I said something like, oh yeah, I tried this drink or something. She was like, yeah, you tried a lot of stuff last night. Drove me to the house of the straight dude that I was dating and went back to her straight boyfriend and we just didn't talk for years. Um, so we were both very much just like, this isn't a thing that we can acknowledge. Later, when I had like kind of gotten a little more comfortable with who I was and still not really out, like I was out to friends and I was like, well, I'm open to this, but I don't really know. I did, like, I brought it up. I was just like, hey, remember the time we had sex and then talked for years? That was weird. <laughs> and she was like, uh-huh, it was. And I was like, what was that about? And we kind of just had this conversation about, like, what would it have meant, you know? what If we would have acknowledged it, what would that have meant for us and our friendship and our identity and just all these things? Because the friendship adds another piece to it. Yeah. Regardless of, of gender or any situation. It's like, we're close friends and, you know, you hook up that always complicate shit just neither of us were comfortable enough with ourselves to even go anywhere near that and so there always kind of been that tension and then when it happened it was just like we were all, we were both just like nope is that how, like you felt after that or was it nope because of a, a friend or were you just like this is too much i think just everything i think like i'm more reluctant to ask women out because i'm scared of what will happen if it goes well what are you scared of exactly public perception not as much like strangers, like I wouldn't be comfortable walking down the street with a woman or like I wouldn't, but like bringing a girl home to my mom's side of the family. I never got to have a coming out conversation with my mom, so I don't know how she would feel about it. And uh, my little brother is trans and he's asked me like, oh, what do you think mom would think about this? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I can tell you. What I think, which is I think it would be really hard at first, and then I think she would be so into it, it would be embarrassing. <laughs> We'd be like, okay, you can take the my kid's a trans honor roll student sticker off the car, mom. And I also, it's so stereotypical, but I'm like, I have mom issues. Like, I have trust issues with women. I don't 
have a lot of good role models for what intimacy with another woman looks like. I don't know how to navigate at all. I'm getting better at it. I had a girl that I was really into that I've become really good friends with and we got to have really awesome conversations about like, oh, this is, I guess it was very easy for me to embrace the part of my identity that was sexually attracted to women, but the part that was romantically attracted to women, that scared the shit out of me. And now I'm like, I just am embracing that feeling and it feels, it feels so good to like feel romantically attracted to women. And when I like a woman, a woman, a woman, I can just be like, oh, I just want to know about your family and tell me about what you were for Halloween when you were six and did your mom make your costume and what did you want to be when you grew up and like all these things that I've always really like loved about getting to know men which is because like that's the part that I've always enjoyed so much about falling in love is like this just intimate knowing of another person and like having that with women's been really scary and now I'm in this like place where like my queer identity where I'm like oh I can just enjoy that like I can enjoy come over and tell me about your day just come tell me how you're feeling and sex is sex and that's cool or whatever but like I want to paint you <laughs> <laughs> paint you like one of those French ladies in your pictures <laughs> it, and I'm not good at it like I think I have game but I don't I'm not I'm re- just I'm really aggressive and, you go um, for what you want I mean it's a different you know I'm a slow play myself I'll talk to you for six months first but you do that in everything in life you just you go for it you know you're like I'm not gonna bullshit around and waste time I'm seeing a guy right now who's like a straight dude but for the most part coming out has been interesting where I'm like oh I'm really more attracted to bisexual men because I feel like I can have a more honest conversation with them about what I'm experiencing even if we do decide we want to have a monogamous relationship and I think that's like a part of bi erasure that's kind of been frustrating for me because I'm like you know I feel like if I'm a queer woman and I'm in a relationship with a queer man then we have a queer relationship (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of privilege to that relationship, but there are things to navigate, and there's very prominent parts of our identity that are, are taken up, not taken up space, but that have to be acknowledged and that have to be nurtured. And it, it doesn't mean that we're not, I guess, navigating our own weird queer space as well. <laughs> so I try to be less immediately upfront about like traumas that I've endured because I've kind of used full disclosure as a shield before my life where I'm like oh here's everything and you don't get to hurt me with anything because it's all out there but when it comes to like things about like my weight and my sexuality and the way that I like to communicate I'm a lot more open so I'm like hi I'm a fat woman and I don't believe in intentional weight loss. <laughs> intentional weight. I've never heard that before. <laughs> I'm like, I don't like it. I think that we're just selling everyone eating disorders and it's a it's a that's another new part of my identity where I'm just like, I'm not anti take care of yourself. You should be kind to your body and kind to yourself in general. And I'm like, I'm fat and I'm okay with that word and it's not a bad word and I like women and I'm okay with that too. And these are just all the things that make me me, and I'm not apologizing for any of it. I used to be like, also, here are the names of all the ex-boyfriends I'm still involved with. And um, also, here are the names of all the men that have ever hurt me. (laughs) I'm less 
forthcoming about those things. I guess my, my dad was like, when you decide to start telling people about the, about those things immediately, you, that's kind of when you know it's not your baggage anymore. Yeah. It's not a thing that you feel like you need to carry into the relationship. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, yeah, that I started going to therapy this year and started to take medication for I have a generalized anxiety disorder. So I'm just having functional panic attacks 24-7. And it's really symptomatic anxiety, which is, like, frustrating because when you're, like, I feel like anxious is a word that people use so often. And so it's, like, hard when my, like, anxiety has been really symptomatic and I'm, like, I need to take a day off work. But I almost feel like I can't be completely honest about why. I'm just like, uh, I'm sick. This is just a whole weird thing that I'm navigating all the time. But because I like grew up in an abusive household, I could be having a panic attack and have a conversation with someone and be pretty like lucid through it. Because it was more yeah, normal. We just yeah, we weren't for you. Us having a panic attack was not a priority and not a thing that was going to be tolerated for like a safety. You know, if I I just learned to be very. Which is why I'm a really aggressive crier now. <laughs> aggressive I, crier. I wasn't allowed to. I think I want to get a tattoo that says aggressive <laughs> crier. Um, teaching me some new shit tonight. <laughs> it's like, we weren't allowed to cry. Like, if we, if us crying, I was like, oh, you're crying? I'll give you something to cry about. That real, like, southern yeah. parenting. So, like, now I'm like, I'll cry when I want to. <laughs> Aggressively as I'm going to do it loudly. I'll say this, though. Uh, when I was in law school, I was so overwhelmed and stressed and anxious and couldn't... Like, I was... Literally, I almost needed to get a mouth guard because I was, like, grinding my mm-hmm. teeth in my sleep. I wasn't eating. I, all I would do is go to school and I would work out. And I got down to a size 4, uh, which for me is unhealthy. Like, for some people, that's a healthy mm-hmm. uh, size. But I'm, I, I've always been a little bigger. And I was, like, the, the skinniest I'd ever been. And everyone else was like... like they're like, you look like shit. Like, even, I'm like, but I'm so skinny. And it's like, but I was so miserable. And I realized, you know, and I moved to New Orleans and very easily uh, got out of that and also graduated school and didn't have the, the same stressors that I had. But like, like, wait, it doesn't, and I look at pictures and I'm like, yeah, like, okay, I was skinny, but like, I wasn't happy. Like, I didn't feel like myself. I didn't feel like that was my body, you know? Yeah, I definitely have that. Like, I have pictures of, like, my weights fluctuated consistently. So, like, there are pictures of me doing comedy where, like, I'm smaller. I'm, like, a lot smaller. And then, especially in burlesque, too, like, I can see, like, costume pieces have fit me differently at different times. And my body's changed shape. My The past year I've spent working on the third floor of a building with no elevator. And my ass is fantastic. Like, <laughs> I didn't know until a couple weeks ago when I got some pictures back from a show. And I was like, whose butt is that? Is that mine? Oh, my goodness. But <laughs> you're also a stairmaster. <laughs> yeah, like, but also like I've at my skinniest in the past five years was like at the height of a really abusive relationship, and I. That's the thing where I'm like, weight doesn't necessarily indicate healthy. Yeah, and I think the sooner like our country, I'll say our country, because I think other countries view weight differently, like realizes that I think it would be better for everybody to to kind of uh, see that and acknowledge that. And I also just, like let people be happy, like. Be healthy in your own way, but skinny doesn't equal healthy. That's what I like about what burlesque kind of did for my comedy, which was I stopped being a poly- Like, I write... I don't really want to write about my weight. Like, it's not a thing that I feel like I need to make jokes about. 
or acknowledge unless it's like the way that people respond to certain things occasionally I just don't I like I'm like oh I can do comedy and be sexy while I do it and like what am I trying to say it's just different I, I like the way that burlesque introduced me to this idea of existing as like a sexual woman and it's outside of my size and outside of my body it's just the way that I carry myself and present myself and I'm able to like bring that to the stage of comedy and it's a lot of fun you're not on stage thinking like oh they're thinking this they're thinking that you're just like I'm just on stage also it's so great that I started burlesque right before I started teaching because kids are mean <laughs> Kids, they're kids so are the funny. worst. I'll say it. I'm sorry if you have kids out there, but they're the worst except yours. Here's your angels. I had this kid who was like, if you don't stop eating, I was like eating a banana. It was the first thing I'd eaten all day. If you don't stop eating, you're going to be obese. And another student heard this interaction and later in the day came to me and was really upset. And he was like, I can't believe she said that to you. You are not a beast. She's a beast. <laughs> Fucking kids, man. Okay, some of them are okay. See, that was your kid out there. The one I said was an angel. That was your kid. You know, I'm just like, all right. That's just... yeah. Kids are, they're honest, though. They'll give it to you straight up. That's the one thing I do respect about them. If they, one time I was babysitting and I had, you know, I was like 14, 15 and I had zits because that's what happens when you hit puberty and they were like, what's that? And it made me feel like shit at the time, but I'm just like, no, like everyone, because I know everyone else saw it, but, like, everyone else pretended like they didn't, you know, and then that helped me realize, like, hey, maybe I should try some concealer or, like, a new face wash or something. And, other, you know, other people... take these kids' mouths. <laughs> yeah, at the time, I'm like, eat your fucking prunes and shut the fuck up and tell your mom you were bad. That's why they pointed out you're feeding them prunes. Their mom was a, a, worked at a gym. Yeah, no, they were pissy, too, because they are like, you're not eating prunes, and I was like, oh, I ate mine when you guys turned around, because I've literally never eaten a full prune in my life, and They're I like, probably never will literally all we do is shit <laughs> yeah you know on, on, on that in LA. yeah this was in LA yeah, I had stopped babysitting for them <laughs> and I never have seen a prune since but uh, thank you Jade for joining us on oh, Near and Queer in My Heart everyone stay tuned we're gonna play uh, one of Jade's performances at Greetings from Queer Mountain in New Orleans thank y'all stressing out about that. Also, I'm the friend that immediately went to her Facebook page. I didn't even watch the video first. I was like, well, I need to get the most important opinion. Soil mine with this propaganda. Because I'm really high. And I normally would not admit that when I'm on stage. Because it's not something I like to do. It slows down my mind. But it kind of ties in, because I smoked because I have, like, horrible social anxiety lately and really bad depression. And I got this, you know, the topic for the show is resolutions, and you think about resolutions and all the things you want to do in the year. But those are hard when, like, air makes you feel like you're being swallowed alive. You're just like, ah, sunlight, I don't know. This is overwhelming. I, um... So I decided, I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about what I was going to talk about, and I know that one of my resolutions has been to be genuine. So I'm going to talk about one of the things that makes me happy. 
and a different kind of coming out that I had to do. My parents and my family, they were really good with the queer stuff. That just made sense to them, apparently. <laughs> I don't know if it was the avocado tattoo <laughs> or the stick and poke I got at summer camp, but somehow they were on board already. Um, what they weren't so on board with was when I decided that I was going to start taking my clothes off in front of hundreds of people. I came to New Orleans to do stand-up about three years ago from a small town about an hour from here. That's not important. Um, and I remember coming in one weekend right before I moved, and I went to the Always Lounge, and there was a burlesque show going on. And it was clue burlesque. And I'd never seen anything like this in my life, ever. And I was just so enamored and really intimidated by these performers who were just so sexy and confident in themselves. And I knew I had to get involved, and I did it for a while. When I did step in, it wasn't as a dancer. It was like as a comedian. I came in, and I would tell jokes and host shows, and eventually that turned into what they call panty wrangling or kittening. You guys have been to a show where you follow after the dancers and pick up their clothes to clear their stream. Um, so I... I went through a really bad relationship that I'm not going to talk about, but with a, another comic that I had ended up living with, and it was terrible. And I left, and somehow the people that surrounded me the most were all these dancers that I had met through shows that I worked with. And they became this weird family, and I said, you know what, it's time for me to do this. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to get on stage. I'm going to try it. I, um... There ended up being an Adventure Time burlesque show. I should specify yeah. that. <laughs> that uh, my burlesque troupe that I am in is a certain subset of neo burlesque called Nerdlesque, <laughs> which is where a bunch of grown people act out all the erotica they wrote when they were 12. <laughs> That's what I'm doing. There was an Adventure Time show, and oh, And it was the same role. This show was an Adventure Time um, rendition of the play Wicked. <laughs> and Ice King was going to sing Defying Gravity. And I said, I was in the church choir. <laughs> and I ended up somehow getting this role. Which, guys, to walk into a newbie and a show that is only drag queens is terrifying. <laughs> Because they knew that I didn't know what I was doing. But we got through it, and it was great and wonderful. And um, I found myself with this, like, this whole new family. And, and I started to get more involved. Um, and the next show that I did was an Always Sunny and Burlesque show, <laughs> where I played Artemis. Okay. <laughs> Which, if you're not familiar with this character, she's um, gross. I, she's great. But she's like a loud, vulgar, big woman, which is a stereotype that I've always tried to avoid. Like, I didn't want to be the girl that was like, I'm fat, but I talk about the sex I have, so you like me. Like, really, even when I talk about, even when I did talk about sex in my sets, like, I tried to, like, fool people like I wasn't having sex with the size I am. Like, I don't 
only have size two sacks. Sometimes a six if I'm feeling good. Um, and I had to like confront this whole new thing, this weird thing where I wasn't accepting myself for what I am and I was making things bad that weren't bad because I got to do that character and she was ridiculous and and vulgar, but she was still sexy and she still deserved to be sexy. And I, it was the best thing, it was one of the best things I've ever done. Like it's, it's not comedy. It's definitely, it is a whole different kind of naked that you were getting. Um, I wore, I didn't wash pasty glue off my nipples for like three days. I was so proud of myself. I was like, oh, my shirt stick to me because I'm brave. <laughs> And now I'm like, I'm in a new year, and, and I'm, I'm overwhelmed and exhausted. I have two little sisters that I'm trying to, to parent, and I don't know how to do it because I'm not too much of a sister and not enough of a mom, and like, I'm trying to like grasp on at work, and I'm not doing enough open mics, and I'm spending way too much money on rhinestones. <laughs> <laughs> absurd things that you never think you would need to rhinestone, like the giant hamburger costume I'm going to make next week. <laughs> I'm not going to tell anybody else about this, but I'm going to share something with you guys. So, hamburger costume, right? Stay with me. Bun peel. <laughs> Cheese peel. <laughs> Lettuce, tomato, who knows what I'm going to put on there. It's going to be wonderful. <laughs> And I was like, you know what? I, I need to talk about a good thing and a positive thing, and that's it's been burlesque. And and one of the reasons that I love my burlesque troupe so much is because it is this like really like just wonderful uh, spectrum of, of people and community. And I started thinking about it that when I was going to do this show, which I think is, a, is another form of community. You guys are all here to hear stories and. Um, I have this, this family now, and we've got everything on every gender spectrum, and everything on every race spectrum, and body size spectrum, and I, ugh, words. And I just feel so good about that, and I think that my resolution is to um, keep finding that sort of family, and part of that is doing shows like these, so thank you guys so much. Thank you to our guest, Jade Patton, for sharing her world with you. Special thanks to Jessa Fallon and Ryan Golub for your help editing and producing the show. Thanks to all our friends and supporters out there. And to our sponsor, Studio. You can catch Greetings from Queer Mountain Queer Storytelling Show live in New Orleans, Austin, and New York City, and coming soon to San Francisco. Also, if you're in New Orleans May 30th, come see a live recording of this podcast at Crescent City Books at 7.30, May 30th. Check out our Facebook page for more information. Take care, y'all! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.